Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've done more than 100 shows now. However, for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today, my guest is Florian Gadsby. The potter currently has a new show of work on the Yorkshire Sculpture Park and has just published a memoir entitled By My Hands that charts his relationship with clay and his experiences of learning how to manipulate the material, both at school and further education, as well as apprenticeships in the UK and Japan. Essentially, it unpicks his route to becoming a fully-fledged professional potter, while at the same time providing tips about his thinking and process. Since he started on Instagram a decade ago, Florian has built up a social media following that can only be described as formidable. And it's part of a generation that has changed the way pots in particular and craft in general can be communicated, using Instagram and YouTube as educational tools, but also as hugely effective channels of selling work. Florian, thank you very, very much for doing this. How are you? My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm well, thanks. Good. Not bad. Good. Glad to hear it. Was that introduction okay? Spot on. Formidable is a new one, but I quite like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's strange. I've only ever really written my own intros, so having other people do them makes my life easier, frankly. Good. I'm glad. You mentioned at one stage in your book mm. um, that we will come to talk to in, about in some detail later, that you believe you can tell a lot about a maker from their studio. Mm, yeah. Now, um, we're on Zoom. And, well, you are in your studio, but you're in the hallway of your studio for technical and echo reasons. I'm wondering if you can describe it for our listeners. What does your studio look like? I think I'm right in saying it's an old industrial laundry. Do you know what? I learn something new every day from my neighbours here about what this place is. So, yeah, it's in High Barnet in North London. It was an industrial laundry. It's also been a mill. It's what powered the big factory next door, essentially. So it's sort of falling apart the roof is leaking. There are kind of painted over windows in the walls and chipping paint right. everywhere. It's quiet and it's peaceful for London. I spent an awful lot of time, almost two years, looking for a place. And I stepped through the doors of this studio and I knew immediately that it was the one. So that's where I've been. Yeah, it's now since 2019. Right. I think I'd be right in suggesting that you're quite an organised individual. You describe yourself as methodical. Your workspace is tidy. Well, uh, <laughs> as soon as anyone steps in, especially potters, it's the first thing they say. Oh my God, it's so clean. Do you even make pots in here? Or, you know. <laughs> it is. And I think it's, I mean, it's funny because if you go to my house, it's not as clean and tidy as it is here. Oh, interesting. But in the studio, I think especially, I just can't concentrate if it's mm. dirty or if there's clay everywhere. And I think it has to do mainly with my apprenticeship years where I spent so much time cleaning and tidying before I was allowed to then work. I know I'll have to do the cleaning later, so I do it first, and then I start working and make a mess. So it's sort of a perpetual, terrible cycle of cleaning, but little and often. So the obvious next question is, what does the studio say about you? Um, There are lots of pots lined up. Everything has its place. I will line the handles up on mugs. I will line the spouts up on teapots. On Instagram and on social media over the last 10 years, OCD is thrown around a lot. Mm. I don't think I am, but people comment that and comment that um does that bother you no i just think it's uh, i would never dream of yelling something like that at someone if i didn't know Mm. for sure um i'm fine it's who i am i like it that way but i think someone would think yeah that i'm maybe meticulous and a bit of a clean freak 
which is funny because if you were to tell my partner that she would laugh at you. So, you know, I think it's very much a studio. It's my studio working environment, but it's also, if you think about it, it has to be clean enough to be presentable in an online world. Mm. In a way, if it was full of clutter and messy, it's a space I take photos in and film in. So I couldn't let it be messy. Otherwise the whole world's going to see that I'm messy. So this is, you know, my sanctum of clarity, really, that kind of feeds into the social media world a bit, I guess, which I'm thankful for because, you know, pottery is a uh, craft with lots of dust that you don't want to breathe in. So if I've been on top of that from most of my life, great. If I don't get potter's rot, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can, everybody can agree on that. Should we talk about your show at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park first? Sure. It opened in November, goes on to the 25th of February. What can visitors expect to see? Are there pots made specifically for the location? I wouldn't say specifically for the location. When Amanda uh, Peach from YSP got in touch, really, she was, you know, she gave me a blank canvas to work with. I went up to see the space and she said, you know, these are the kind of plinths and the um, cabinets we have available. What would you like to make and fill them? And um, I've been kind of collecting pots for a long time that I really love and stashing them away. So this show is everything since my apprenticeships. It's the work I've collected since finishing my six-year ceramic education. Mm. And it's the first time I've had a large-scale physical solo exhibition. So, you know, it links very intrinsically with the book. The book is about my education. Well, we will talk about the book. Okay. But we won't spoil it. No, we, we won't encourage spoil people it. to buy it. That's what we're going to do. But it's essentially, it's my mind unfurled into the shelves and plinths in the museum, in the gallery. So there's functional work. There's more sculptural pieces. It's a real range. Right despite it all being mostly monotone <laughs> greens, blues, and, you know, whites. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a very special place, the Orchard Sculpture Park, isn't it? Mm. I think I was, I was saying to you, but I think our internet connection went down. My, my uncle was very involved in the launch of it back in the 70s. Oh, really? He used to run Breton College. Ah. So um, Peter Murray, who founded it, came to him and said, I've got this idea for an outdoor sculpture park. Alan, my uncle was Alan Davis, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And he kind of went, yeah, let's do it. And so, yeah, 50 or 40 odd years later, there it is. Amazing. I mean, it's, it's a really beautiful place. And actually, I always say that my pots look best in natural light because they have such glassy surfaces. You know, when you're in a gallery and there's too much focused kind of warm light or even kind of a a whiter tone, it kind of washes my pots out. But in that space on a sunny day with all the dappled light coming through the windows, through the trees, it's beautiful Mm. and serene and calm. And I think that's probably what I'm trying to do with my pots anyway, is kind of make people feel at ease. And you also seem to be selling, I guess what you'd call nowadays, I'm too old, but here we go merch oh yeah well see (laughs) i saw a limited edition tool roll on your instagram page yeah i mean again a complete surprise i did not know that any of that was going to happen and then a few months after agreeing to do the show and after making pots and kind of starting to get organized ysp came to me and they were like you know with every artist we do a collection of merchandise so we've worked with the hand stitch society to produce a tool roll and an apron locally made and then there are prints and um God, what else is there? I should know. There's a calendar and there are postcards and it's not a lot. There's a, a nice tote bag, but I have to say it feels very strange because I've never been involved with selling anything that I haven't created or, I, I, you know, everything mm. has had my name mm. on it. So it's a learning curve. And I suppose in a good way, my work is quite difficult to get hold of. So people, if, you know, a tote bag or a, a tool roll, if they can actually get something and be guaranteed to get something, if that makes somebody happy, then great. Mm. And the book and the show were time to coincide, um, as you mentioned. Was it always an ambition to write a book? I mean, it's an interesting hybrid because I said in the intro, there are these didactic elements mm-hmm. where you tell readers how to do things and the back section shows a step-by-step guide to making a mug, for instance. But that's wrapped up in what's fundamentally a memoir. You're quite young to be publishing your life story. Tell me about it. <laughs> um, yeah, 
honestly, I feel very, in a way, I feel very strange having written something which is essentially part memoir, and I'm 31 years old. Yet the book is purely about my education, I guess, and my thoughts interspersing it at points. I thought it was important to write something before I got too old and whilst I could remember everything and whilst I still had orderly notes kept from all my apprenticeships. But I totally get that it's unusual. I hope people um, <laughs> like it, I guess. It's still very weird hearing from anybody who's actually read it because a pot is one thing, but a tome of pages, which is all about my life, is a completely different story. And it's been unusual and surreal hearing from people who've actually flicked through it. Mm, I mean, how did it come about? Because I know from personal experience that it isn't easy to publish a book, right? I mean, did particular books, the publisher, hmm. come to you with the idea? Did you go to them? They came to me. So, I mean, I was lucky in a way, well, very lucky. I got the keys to my studio in 2019. And I think in 2020, my agent, Ben Clark, got in touch with me. Sorry, he wasn't my agent. I got an email from him out of the blue and he was like, you know, have you ever thought about writing something? And I I said, you know, I have, but frankly, I've just got my studio. The last thing I want to do after two years not making pots is sit down and write a book. There were pots dying and flowing and I needed to create what was in my head out into the shelves of my studio. So I said like, look, not now, get in touch in like a year or two. And then the year after Richard Atkinson the then publishing director of particular books got in touch. And I just thought, well, I spoke to my stepdad, who's an author and my family. I was like, you know, is this a good idea? And he was like, you'd be stupid not to do it. And I'm glad I did. It's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. I've written on my social media and blogs online, something that's the equivalent of like a 1,100 page novel and more. That was the last time I did the calculation. Yeah. So it made sense really to do something that was more thorough, more personal a bit more interesting than just the daily grind of what well, is Instagram and things like that. And how did you find the writing process? I mean, did you find parallels with your ceramic practice? Yeah, I found it difficult initially. I didn't know quite what shape I should be delivering the original manuscript to Richard in. And I think I spent a long time kind of fussing and fussing and kind of really perfecting it before sending it to him. And then one day he was like, look, Florian, think of it like a pot. You know, the initial object you throw isn't perfect. But then once you throw it, you let it go leather hard and then you trim it and then you can refine it and then it's bisque fired and then you glaze fire it. And only when it's glaze fired is it the finished final object. So that really helped. It made me kind of relax. And I just wrote an obscene, I wrote 150,000 yeah. words in the first draft and I sent it to Richard and he butchered it and rearranged it. And he did a really, really, really good job making my thoughts more coherent and kind of making me realize where the, the story was. Mm. It's a lonely thing to do writing yeah. a book. I'm a journalist by background, so I do a certain amount of writing, obviously. But then you're going out meeting people, talking to them, and that creates mm. the content for mm. you. And the time I wrote a book, I found it a very dislocating experience. But you work alone in the studio anyway, I guess. So maybe it isn't that different. I mean, I would argue that I was more sociable writing my book than I am in my studio. <laughs> you know, I went and visited um, people who were in the book and I spoke to them. But also my day-to-day -day life was uh, I didn't write at the studio. I wrote at home. We got a dog who was a puppy during the time. So it was kind of, it worked. I could look after the dog and write. And my partner also works from home. So actually I got to spend a lot more time with her when usually I'm a hermit up in my studio in High Barnet. But like you said, I really don't mind it. I like working by myself. I like having no interruptions in the studio. I like not having a deadline or a team to kind of look after. I've always been very good in my own company. And what's the fascination with the kind of Celadon green, Florian? I mean, lots of your pots are green. The cover of the book is green. Even the type inside the book is green. Good question. Um, that's just me. It, you will never, you will never <laughs> see me wearing bright colours. I've always worn greens and blues and muted tones. 
I aim to create the objects I want to live with. And it just so happens that I've got, I think I have quite an obsessive personality and um, I get stuck in my ways very easily. And I think the glazes that I've been using, yes, I have been using for almost 10 years now. And I've been trying to push and find new things. Hence why they're in the YSP show, there are some kind of metallic glazes that are new and different and unusual. And they kind of break up. Mm. My work is very uniform and, you know, highly finished. But these are pots that I have no control over in the kiln. I brush iron and other metals onto them and I put them in the kiln and I hope they're going to work. And I have no idea what the outcome is going to be. And actually, those have been the most exciting objects that I've made in the last couple of years. Hmm. I mean, just sticking with the book for a while, it's Mm. interesting because the ability to write and be published can take you as a maker, artist, to quite a different place. I mean, two of the UK's best-known potters, Mm -hmm. Edmund Duval, Grayson Perry, have both published a number of books. Yeah. I remember when I used to edit crafts, doing a list of the most influential people in the field, and, and most of them had the ability to write, and I guess communicate ideas effectively. Did this enter your thinking when you decided to do the book? Being able to communicate ideas effectively? Well, where publishing a book could take you? I mean, short answer, no. I didn't write it to become something else, more than a potter. Mm. Pottery is what I like and enjoy the most. I'd like to think it's what people know me for, rather than being you know, this social media person. The book, though, has opened up other channels, and I think it will help me reach a wider audience and to get to know a bit more about me. Truthfully, I haven't thought about it that much. Mm. I mean, it has a lovely opening line, especially if you have a podcast about materials, <laughs> where, where you write, I sometimes feel as if my life didn't really begin until I started throwing pots. Mm. Can you remember the first time you touched clay and, and how it felt? I should mention, <laughs> this is from one of my listeners, I should mention that I got a note mm. from a designer at Manor Furniture in Australia this week who binge listened to the show and has developed a drinking game as a result. And apparently he has to have a drink if certain key words crop up continually. Oh, God. Damazine. Damazine is one of them. So this is for him. Did you have a Damazine moment? No. Um, <laughs> my father was a art director involved with graphic design brilliant drawer, draftsman, every, you know, everything. He can do type, he can do draw, he can draw anything from his mind and it will look as if it's been, pr- it's just, it's unfair almost. And um, mm. I think for a long time I wanted to be in graphic design and that's how I taught myself how to use Photoshop and Illustrator. And before I became a potter, when I was maybe 14 to 16, I would just watch tutorials online and imitate what I saw and get better and better at computer graphics and things like that. I went to a school where thankfully, arts and crafts were taught alongside everything else. So, Well, he went to a Steiner school. I went to a Waldorf Steiner school. Yeah. And, you know, they're places where painting and drawing and pottery and metalwork and woodwork are basically seen as important as maths and English and science. Those were the subjects I always loved. I loved making with my hands. And that's been from a very young age. You know, I played with Lego practically my entire childhood. That's what I wanted to do. But pottery didn't strike me as this immediate kind of, you know, I didn't have that romantic moment where I fell in love with it. I mean, the first time I touched it was when I was in kindergarten when we dug the stuff up ourselves and made things with it and baked it alongside bread that we made in wood ovens outside, which is quite, you know, that could be the romantic moment if I really wanted to choose it. Yes. And I think with, you know, rose-tinted specks, that moment is, you know, I write about that in the book because actually that is a poignant moment in my life because it's not often that maybe you'd experience material like that so early. No, I wanted to do fine art. And one day I was in the art room and my metalwork teacher, ceramics teacher and fine art teacher came up to me and were like, can we have a meeting in the metal workroom at lunchtime? And I was like, oh God. you know, I was really good in school. I find it very hard being loud or naughty or getting in trouble. I, that was not me. So 
them asking to meet me filled me with dread. And uh, I went down into the metalwork room, which was this kind of dank, smelly, windowless room. And they just simply said, Florian, we think you should pursue three-dimensional arts and pottery specifically. Why was that? Because you draw beautifully and you see some of your drawings in the book. So what was it they saw about your relationship with clay, I wonder? At that time, it was clay and metal. So I was doing metal sculpture as well, kind of very angular figures based off kind of um, vorticist pieces. They were kind of disturbing (laughs) objects, but I think they... I mean, actually, who knows? They saw something. They saw that I worked more fluently with my hands. And I am, you know, internally grateful that that they told me that. I think initially I, as a, a young teenager, was sort of like, oh, God, you know, you're wrong. I think I know what's right. But again, I went home and I thought about it. And if three people who are very good at what they do in their own crafts, you know, in their own right, if they tell you that, they're probably not wrong. Yeah, I was quite intrigued by your relationship with your school in the book because there's obviously a lot of love for it and you refer to them as almost feeling like a family at Mm -hmm. at various points. There's scepticism there as well. I mean, mainly about this kind of spirituality side of the Steiner strand of education. Yeah, I mean, from an outsider's perspective, Steiner is bizarre and weird and uh, (laughs) there are a lot of religious oddity things you do know. We jumped over fires and sang pagan chants. We um, danced around in colourful smocks. We would say grace before lunch every day, up until kind of the really late classes. I think it, it came from a place, obviously, Waldorf Steiner was a man who grew up in Europe at a certain time when most people were probably Catholic. And a lot of that does or did still, um, especially with my older teachers. I remember once getting into an argument at the pottery and we had a cover teacher who was one of the elder men in the school I was arguing with a friend of mine about God and she really believed in God. And I, you know, I was 13 or something. And I said, look, I just don't, I don't buy into it. I think it's all a farce. And my teacher loomed over me and went, you know, why do you not believe in God? And I remember thinking like, Christ, like what is going? So there were parts of my education where that was the environment I was in. And I write in the book, you know, actually things like choir, where we were singing a lot of religious music. I both hated it and loved it. I did not like the religious connotations, yet at the same time, singing in a choir like that with all your friends, there's something beautiful about that. And it's being in a team, in a unit. I think that's something Steiner does very well. It kind of teaches you how to be together and be as one and kind of flow and move together. And I I think Eurythmy, which is this kind of form of dance that we did where I just mentioned it, where you dress in kind of colourful smocks, that's all about teaching children how to work and move in a group and think about each other's movement. And it's about spatial awareness. So there are lots of things. Conflicted, yes. At the same time, I think if I ever have children and they don't have that kind of education, I feel like maybe they're going to miss out on something intrinsically important. That material education is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Let's face it nowadays. I mean, there aren't that many schools with workshops, certainly of the calibre no. that you describe in, in the book. No, and I think that's what I'm scared of. I'm scared about having a child who spends majority of their childhood on a screen, then their teenage years on a screen, then they go into work and that's on a screen. That actually fills me with dread. Like, honestly, fills me with this strange sensation that I just, I could never let my child have that experience. And Steiner, for all its oddities, at least it let children kind of, you know, we went to local farms, we milked cows, we had our own allotments that we tilled and grew our own vegetables. And, you know, we understood where food came from. And then that extended into, you know, we learned how to knit and sew. We learned how to knit before we did any mathematics. So, you know, we were all sitting there knitting bags for our recorders before we did any maths. 
So we knew where clothes came from, you know, we knew how they were made. And then that extends into pottery. So you have kids who are six or younger, we know how pots are made. Same then later for metalwork, then woodwork, sculpting marble. I think having this understanding of the material world around you is something that's taken for granted. Is that the right word? Maybe not. I think it's really important to know where things come from. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it, I think later in life, even as a teenager then growing up, it's a hard thing to describe this. You understand the world around you. That it simply is that. You understand where everything that's coming into your home, what it is, how it's you know come to being. This is key, isn't it? I mean, this is why actually I set up the podcast, mm. because if you understand the material world, the stuff that surrounds you, you probably have a better handle on the world in general. Uh, around this stage, mm-hmm. Bernard Leach was an influence. Yes. What was it about his work you found fascinating? I think I didn't know much. And I think I was, at that time, books that were in my pottery and what my teacher was telling me was very much, you know, she was informing me about the history of British ceramics and obviously Leach. Wrote the book on it, almost literally. (laughs) Well, precisely, you know, exactly. I remember reading some books and looking at his studio and just seeing like photos of them around the fire in St. Ives. And that community of potters was entice you know that idea that notion of working in a place like that was really enticing uh, you know to the extent where i ended up emailing the leech pottery bluntly asking them if i could come and work for them when i was something you know like 17 years old and his pots were just something different and new but at that time i was very much into leech's pots phil rogers mike dodd that whole kind of echelon of you know functional heavier not heavy as in heavy but you know they are more bold wood-fired objects with ash glazes and things I, i was completely transfixed and i think it was a good place to start really and I'm still inspired by them to some degree. Mm. It changes, obviously, over time what inspires mm. you. Because obviously, but the, the, I think the pots I make now are nothing like those. I mean, I don't think you'd think of Leach as being an influence looking at your work. No, but... Which I suppose is, I mean, it's, that's the nature of, you know, the, the journey that people take, I guess, through a profession. Yeah, maybe not obviously so, but he was on my journey. You know, he was a figure that helped me get into ceramics. And I think it was his book, especially, full of illustrations, which I adored, as I was somebody mm. who drew all the time. His book did the two things that I love the most. You know, it was talking about pottery, which I, I, I did. The moment I made a, a vessel that was functional and that was well-made, that's when I had my kind of sparking moment of, this is something I could see myself doing. So I think his, you know, drive of creating pots that are utilitarian, that really inspired me at the beginning. And that's all I wanted to learn. Once I got a good grip on the wheel and I could kind of center the clay pretty well and throw shapes, even if they were kind of rudimentary. When I started making things that were functional, I can give to my friends and family. I remember, you know, giving my friend a a mug and a plate and they were like, you made these. That's when I got hooked to the craft. Mm. Interesting. So after school, you didn't choose to study ceramics at university. No. Why was that? Because at the time in 2012, (laughs) the courses were rubbish. They were not what I wanted. I remember going on one of my visits, I I went to a lot of different universities to kind of, you know, to see the open days. I mean, maybe rubbish is a bit harsh of a term. All I wanted was to learn practical skill. I wanted to be able to do something good. You know, I'd never been able to do anything in my life well. I didn't excel at any subject. And I just wanted to be able to do something, make proficiently, you know, understand how a kiln works. And um, I remember going to Stoke-on-Trent and we had this, you know, the long tour of the department. I was talking to the tutor towards the end about throwing. And I was like, look, I just really want to learn how to throw. That's all I want to learn how to do. And she said, well, maybe, you know, we could get a tutor in maybe once a week or something. And I was like, you know, that's not enough. And then she said to me, actually, you know, probably it's best if you don't come here. Oh, really? And if the head of ceramics is telling you don't come to Stoke-on-Trent to learn ceramics, then there's something deeply wrong with the department and 
everything that's going on. And I think at that time, there just was not a drive for, I mean, 2012, I think was just before ceramics saw this huge upburst in popularity. You know, it's, it's ramped up massively over the last 10 years, but this was still a time when courses were closing. And I was really sort of depressed because all my friends were going to uni and I was there hating every place I visited. And then one day I found out about this course in Ireland. Yes, the Design and Crafts Council of Ireland Ceramic Skills and Design Training course, which is quite a mouthful. I'm glad you said it because it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, hard, it's, it's very a, easy to, to trip over. It's a lot to remember. So that appealed for why? It was perfect. It was this idyllic pottery in a mill by a river. There were 25 kilns for 12 students. It was free. I got paid by the Irish government through European funding to attend it. I know, that's a thing, isn't it? Well, you got, what, 80 euros a week or something? Exactly, and that paid for my rent in Thomastown, which was 200 euros a month. So it felt like everything just rolled into place. Was it strange leaving London for the Irish countryside? <sighs> that's one of the things they asked me in the interview. They were like, you live in London, you, can, you, you might find it really difficult living in Thomastown where you can't you know, really escape. And, and I said, no, I'm actually going to love it. I grew up in the countryside and I was looking forward to being somewhere where I couldn't do anything other than learn how to make pots. And it was isolating, but it's two years. Two years isn't a long time to, you know, if you're doing what you love, I think it's easy. Mm. And you were the youngest on the course. Yes. At that point, I was the youngest ever attendee. That's the interesting thing about the course. You know, you don't fill your age in on the application. So it can be a, a real mix of people. So I think I was 20 when I started. The eldest was 44. <laughs> uh, and it's funny because like in some of our tutorials we had, they were like, Florian, we're really amazed by your maturity and I just think I'm thinking like I'm, I'm the youngest here why are they said you know telling that to me but it meant that there was kind of a very interesting group of people that ended up being on the course it was people from across Europe different minds different you know understandings of the craft but everybody had this you know un, unwavering passion to learn how to be a proficient maker um, so it honestly was perfect I would go back and do it again in a heartbeat if it still existed and they were taking applicants yeah perfect I hope you're enjoying the show. This is just to let you know that the Material Matters Fair will return to Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf, this September from Wednesday the 18th to Saturday the 21st. Keen to exhibit? Do drop me a line at hello at materialmatters.design. That's hello at materialmatters.design. Also, if your brand is looking to reach the design world, there are a plethora of sponsorship opportunities. My partner, William Knight, and I would be delighted to hear from you. Right, on with the episode. One of the things that shines through in the book is your love of mugs. <laughs> it's the first thing you made yeah. at Thomastown. What is it about the humble mug? Why is it your favourite thing to make? Nowadays, it's this shape that I make that I can completely switch off to and kind of be dead to the world in the nicest way of putting, <laughs> you know, with throwing, it gets thrown around. There's kind of this romantic notion of it being very relaxing and, and meditative and all this, which is fine. But when you're doing it for your living, it's not always relaxing. You know, sometimes throwing pots is the last thing I ever want to do. I want to, you know, I'm thinking about dinner. I'm thinking about doing my taxes. I'm thinking about the Instagram post I've got to do later. The mugs I make are relatively simple and they're one of the only shapes that I can actually throw where I don't have to think about what my hands are doing. And usually I'm listening to a podcast or something. So my mind is then completely absorbed by this other activity. So both mind and hands are occupied and I can just throw and throw and throw and it can feel like hours go past in seconds. That's a rare moment, but it's the mug that gives me that tends to be one of the only shapes where I can get to that point of enlightenment. But otherwise, it's just a lovely, you know, every single person uses a mug. Everyone has a mug that is their favourite, whether they realise it or not. 
I get to use pots made by my Japanese friends that I'm not going to see for a very long time or talk to for a very long time, but I can connect with them in a very personal, intimate way every time I have coffee in the morning. In the book, I call them the gateway drug of the pottery world. And I think that's, <laughs> it's true. You know, it's what often entices people into the craft to start collecting ceramics. But you don't like the word mug. No, I mean, it's ugly, isn't it? There has to be a better word. It's just, um, I think the mugs I make these days are quite finessed, refined objects and mug doesn't necessarily work, but it's fine. You love a mug, but you, um, you really don't like a stemmed goblet. Oh God, don't get me started. I think, yeah, no, never. You will never see me make one of those. <laughs> I mean, is there a hierarchy of ceramic objects? I mean, at one point you described a teapot as the boss. I mean, it depends. If you're looking at the ceramics as only being functional objects, then a teapot is arguably yeah. one of the most difficult to produce because you have to get so many things right for it to work. But ultimately, if you're making you know larger sculptural pots, then those are difficult. I'm making, what was I making? These tiny vases where every single facet had to be the exact same size. Those were incredibly difficult to make. So I think it's a debatable topic. But if you're looking at, especially from you know, a learner's perspective, a teapot is a real challenge. Why? Because it has to pour well. It has to be comfortable to hold. The lid has to stay in place as you're pouring it. The handle has to be large enough that you don't burn your fingers as you're tipping it over. The teapot has to be light enough that once filled with tea, it doesn't feel like it's exceptionally heavy. If you were to make a teapot that was thrown with thick walls and then you fill it with tea, it can feel as if you, you know, the handle isn't going to support the weight. The spout has to pour well it has to not drip too much there's just a lot that can go wrong and all that is exacerbated by the fact that then you then have to glaze it and then glaze it successfully and then fire it successfully i made a lot of bad teapots before i was happy with one and i think you know and that's a nice thing it's a, a challenging object that's hard to make i remember feeling so unbelievably proud when i made my first one that kind of functioned okay I'm happy I don't have them. I actually have no idea where they are. They were ugly, horrible things, but they were they signified an important moment in my education. Mm. Another word that crops up quite regularly, and we've touched on this, but I'm, I'm going to go back to it a little bit, is the word repetition. Mm. I mean, you talked about missing it on a recent Insta post where you were discussing writing the book and not making pots. So monotony isn't a bad thing. There is joy to be had in repetition. Did you miss it? Dearly. Imagine if you were somebody who's done yoga every single day for well, since you were 15 years old. And then suddenly it's something you're not, you're not doing every single day. I think when something becomes so part of what you do, it can be challenging when you suddenly don't do that. And I, I totally, if, I'm, if I haven't been making pots for two or three weeks, I can feel myself become grumpier and snappier. But repetition, I think, gets, I get asked all the time by people, you know, aren't you bored by throwing the same things over and over again? I love it. I think if you're making a mug, for instance, it takes making so many of that same shape to really perfect all the tiny, subtle intricacies. And yeah, I missed it. Doing the book was a challenge. I really missed, you know, throwing 50, 60 mugs, 50, 60 bowls, a dozen teapots. It's very gratifying seeing, you know, at the end of the day, when you look at your workbench and you see the tabletop full of wearboards, full of pots that have all come from your hands and they all look identical. I mean, that's a, a miracle that somebody is able to do that. You know, I have a, a neighbor here who's a, a carpenter and he came in a few weeks ago and saw, I think like four or five boards of mugs. They're all the same. And he was like, how on earth did you get them all the same? And I was like, <laughs> it's practice, isn't it? If you were to ask a musician who's played the same piece for 10 years, they're going to be perfect at it. But there are still subtle differences and intricacies that I think only the potters will see. Mm. I will see how a handle might alter slightly in its shape in a way that I doubt anyone else will. So you're in Thomastown now. 
you wrote about your teenage years that you felt socially awkward and disconnected. Mm. Is this the moment you kind of found a, I mean, it's modern parlance, but you found your tribe. Yeah, precisely. And did that affect other aspects of your life? Yeah, I, I grew up and I didn't live near many of my friends and I had this kind of online social world where I played video games and that was a really big part of my life. And I've always been quite a quiet person. I've never been someone who goes out and is, you know, I'm never the life of the party. I prefer the quiet side of things. And a lot of my friends, I love them dearly. You know, they are my family, my the Stein a lot, but none of them were interested in ceramics. So meeting the people in Ireland who are actually interested in making pots and we could talk about potters and styles and firing, it was completely eye-opening. And I think I found a new way of being. And I also just spent a lot more time being good to myself, you know, getting into a healthier lifestyle because pottery is quite an arduous task when you're doing it every day from nine till five. You've got to be physically competent to do it. So yeah, I changed a lot in Ireland as a person. And I think had I not gone there to experience that, my life would be a much worse place. I would be in a much worse place. Mm. I mean, you talk about Ireland teaching you practical skills, Mm. but when did your style begin to emerge, Florian? Uh, Towards the end, I think. Yeah. So the first year they don't care. They want you to be fluent. They want you to become a fluent maker and to be able to produce whatever they throw at you well, even if you don't like it. And then in the second year they go, okay, now we're really going to listen to what you want to make. You know, what is the style that excites you? And that's where it all came about. At the end of the day, I just wanted to make objects that were simple. I mean, the thing is, I like pots that are decorative by other potters, but not in my own work. And that's when the style sort of came to life. I speak a lot in the book about finding your voice in clay. And that's a whole other conversation is how do you find a style that's particular to you? Because it's so, so many things. For instance, you know, I don't know whether growing up in a city has informed the angularity and sharpness of my work. I don't know if that's had an impact. I don't think I'm inspired very much by nature. I grew up in a family where objects were very important. My dad had a lot of uh, pieces um, in the house that I would be spending my time with. He's very critical. My mother has a very good eye. I mean, this is another point where I think other people sometimes have a better <laughs> way of explaining your style to you because I enjoy making what I make and it does develop over time, but I've never sat down and gone, I'm going to make pots where there are only straight out lines and angles and sharp lids and all, all this. I've never sat down and done that. I just draw and what I draw is what comes naturally. Presumably you were looking at things other than Bernard Leach by this time. Oh yeah. Your second year in Thomas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still mostly functional. That's when I first started really getting into Lisa Hammond. Lots of Anameta Herzog. I really liked Sven Baer's work. Throwing me back at it. I mean, mainly it was um, lots of my inspiration came from ancient Chinese pots. So there's this one little black and white bowl in the VNA, which is only about six inches wide, three inches tall, but it looks like it could be made by somebody these days. It's so contemporary. And as I lived in London, I spent any time when I was in Ireland, whenever I came back home for the holidays, I would go and sit in the VNA and look at all the work. And every time I came back to the VNA, being more informed about the process of how work is produced, I learned to fire kilns and reduction. And then I went back to the VNA and I looked at everything in a new light. But who knows? Inspiration is a really, it's one of the questions that I, if I'm doing interviews with people, I tend to ask them not to ask. (laughs) I would rather somebody else looks at my work and goes, well, okay, maybe it's like from this and this. There are makers who sit down and go, I'm inspired by the landscape and the sea. And on my walks, I go and I look at the textures on the rocks and I look at the lichen and the rust and I want to embody that in my pots. I've never done that. Mm. But I did grow up, I suppose, also watching an obscene amount of sci-fi, playing video games, set in space, listening to kind of punk rock bands, you know, things like Tool, where that's maybe there is kind of a sci-fi aesthetic. And I don't know if that's something that's then come into my work. I've had people look at my pots and go like, God, I could really see that in Dune. 
I love when people say that because I feel like, oh, cool, you know, <laughs> maybe that is where I want to see my pots. <laughs> Should we talk about your design process? Sure. Drawing is very important, it seems to me. Before, because something like, I don't know, Jennifer Lee, she draws after the pot is finished and that informs her next pot. But it seems to me that you're, or it looks like you're quite technical drawings before you sit down to the wheel. Not every time. I think I go through periods where I binge and I just draw and draw and draw and draw, trying to get an idea out and then I'll go to the wheel and throw. Because you can draw, you know, 20 iterations of the same teapot in the same time it takes to make one. So it's a very quick way of getting ideas out. My teacher, Gus Mabelson in Ireland, I was very lucky to have him as a teacher because he was somebody who had lots, his, his mind was very similar to my mind, I think. Mm. He was very orderly. He liked to draw. And, you know, I've had pottery teachers who aren't like that. And I haven't really connected with them. Whereas Gus, I felt akin to him, like family. And I, maybe I got it from him. I think the biggest period of my life when I got back from Japan, I spent two years almost looking for a studio. And because I couldn't make pots, I just used to draw all day long. I filled dozens of sketchbooks with just pages of pots because I had no other way of being creative. But it's important. Less so sometimes, more so other times. It kind of comes and goes. It's proportionality. That's the hardest thing to get right. I think getting the angles in my drawings to reflect in the clay is a real challenge. I wish I had more time to do it, is the other thing. And why the clay that you've chosen in particular? Why the stoneware as opposed to, I don't know, I mean, you talk about the difficulty of working with porcelain Mm -hmm. in the book, for instance. You know, sometimes you just settle into certain ways in your life. And there's no real reason for it. In many ways, my work makes more sense in porcelain because porcelain can be thrown finer and to sharper edges. And if that's something I've strived for, I do strive for this kind of sense of delicacy and finesse. Sometimes stoneware isn't the obvious choice because it's full of grit that you can only make to an edge that's so fine. So good question. I think I fell into it and I learned to love it. And I learned how it reacted with the Celadon crackle glazes I was using. Like I said before, I think I have quite an obsessive mentality and I find change in many situations hard. So clay shouldn't be one of those things, but you get familiar with the material. I know so intimately how to work with this clay body now. And when I try others, yes, they're exciting, but I don't have that familiarity. Yeah, yeah. You've already mentioned Lisa Hammond. Yes. Who's one of the pivotal figures in the book, and you did a three-year apprenticeship with her. Mm. How did that relationship begin? Had you been a fan of her work? She was one of the people who advised that I don't go to university in the UK. So before I went to Ireland, I met her, I think at Ceramic Art London for the first time. And again, I said to her, like, look, I want to be your apprentice. (laughs) And I think she was like, oh my, you know, you're young and you're enthusiastic, but your making skills aren't there yet. And she said, instead of spending the money, tuition fees had also just come in. So she said, instead of spending the money you, you would spend on university, just spend it doing masterclasses around Europe and the UK, because you're going to learn so much more. So she kind of helped steer me away initially from that point. And then I found out about Ireland. Not only did I really love her pots, but she worked in London and lots of things just made sense. You know, there aren't actually that many potters who take on apprentices. And now she's had something like 15 over a period of 30 years, which is miraculous achievement. So that's how I first met her. And I offered to go and clean out that she just moved back to Mays Hill Pottery in London. And I said, look, I'll come in I'll do anything. I'll come and clean the garden. I'll peel the moss off the overgrown walls in the back. So I I went there and I basically did that. I did some gardening for a couple of days and I did lots of other jobs like that. And you slowly build, I think many, often when you're trying to find an apprenticeship, you have to build a relationship with somebody first in a way, because at the end of the day, an apprenticeship is a very intimate relationship. You know, I, I was with Lisa for longer than she was with her partner at the time. I spend more of the day with her. You know, we listen to the radio together. And then when things happen in each other's life, you go into work and then you are the people who console each other. So it's very personal. And I think 
it took kind of that getting to know her and to really show her that I was serious. And I think that was in Ireland. I met her again. And I think she first met me when I was kind of a student who was a bit overweight, didn't really know what he wanted to do, kind of a bit, I don't know. She obviously had this preconception of me. And then she came to Ireland and, you know, I changed completely. I was focused and um, she says she saw that. And it's that moment that when she kind of made the decision, she still put the ad in Stormrock Review and I had to apply for it. But when I talk to her these days about it, she goes, well, you know, I have my eye on you. And yeah, Lisa was the stepping stone that launched me to actually have a career. So, you know, I owe Lisa everything. Mm. And it was Lisa that arranged your trip to Japan yes. for a six-month, well, residency, would you call it, or apprenticeship? I mean, it's, How would it's you describe it? on the official documentation in the application for the visa, it's apprenticeship. Right. With Ken Matsuzaki yes. in Mashiko, which forms final chapter of your story. Yes. I mean, maybe in the first instance, it'd be good to know where Ken stands in the lineage of Japanese potters. I mean, it's as good as it gets, almost. He... he worked with Shimoka, who was the apprentice to Soji Hamada. So the whole Minge movement, you know, Ken is coming from a lineage of potters who have been vitally important to how craft is perceived in Japan. And obviously that has mm. its link to um, ceramics in the UK with St. Ives and Bernard Leach. So it's really important. And over there, especially, it's really important. I don't think people in the West will quite understand how important it can be, right? To the same degree that I think ceramics in Japan, we're never going to get to a place in this country where it's perceived with the same reverence. Never. Mm. Mm. So Ken, you know, and he doesn't have many visiting apprentices. I was very lucky to have Lisa kind of organise this exchange and it was the hardest work I've ever done. I was going to say, sorry to buzz in, but he really worked you hard. I mean, your day didn't start at the wheel, but instead he had you sweep up all the leaves of the pottery mm. that took two hours. I mean, it, it sounded properly intense. Yeah. Very uh, karate kid. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I remember there were times during my six months in Japan, you know, I would get home after working a 13 hour day and think, oh, you know, I'm knackered. This is rubbish. I want to go home. Nowadays, when I look at it, I think, thank God I worked my ass off to get to that position and to be there and to survive it and to do it and to really experience what an apprenticeship is like in Japan. It's just a different, I, I mean, this is a whole topic in itself. I think a lot of people thought I would go to Japan and I would come back making Japanese style pots and teaware and sakeware and all, you know, everything like that. Really, what I wanted to get out of the experience is just to experience it and to see kind of their industrious level of work and their dedication to the craft. That's all I wanted from that experience because Lisa had been telling me about it for three years and I just needed to know, <laughs> was it real? You know, is it like she told me? And it was. And it was by far the most interesting chapter of my life. I'm intrigued then, how did it or did it affect your practice? I mean, you're saying you didn't come back making sake ware. Mm. But can you point to areas of your practice where those six months impacted? Maybe the fact that trimming pots quite a lot is okay. Right. There's this kind of infatuation, especially in the past in the UK with certain potters where a pot is thrown, you finish it with your thumb, you give it a rough thumb around the base and that's it. It doesn't need any trimming. And then I went to Japan and Ken would throw lots of work and then trim lots of work. And um, that's okay. I think ultimately there's a difference between pottery in the West and the East. In the East and in Korea and China as well, Potters trim quite a lot and that's fine. Whereas in the UK, I would often get kind of snarky comments from potters being like, basically insinuating that I wasn't a very good maker because I turned. And actually it's just complete. I can't swear on this podcast, can well, I? Well, you can if you like. Yeah, yeah. It's horse shit. And, uh, <laughs> oh, that's not even a swear word. It doesn't uh, no. count as a swear word. But anyway, I'll, try, yeah. I'll try harder next time. The, um, <laughs> so when you say, sorry, Florian, but I just think it's important yeah. for listeners who maybe are not potters. When you say trim, what does that mean? 
when you take the throne vessel, you let it turn leather hard and that takes maybe a day or two. And then you use kind of these sharp bladed tools to remove excess from the bottom and to shape the bottom. But basically pottery is a craft that comes, and I'm sure it's like every other craft where there's this perceived way, you know, this is the way it should be done. And the more I experienced the world of ceramics and the more people I met and the more I traveled to different countries to see how it's done, everyone does it differently. And who cares? You know, if the people are enjoying what they make and what they do, then so be it. That's what's important. And um, that's what I got from Japan. It wasn't about going there and taking anything back. In fact, this is another very gray area and a hard topic of conversation, which is, for instance, the moon jar. And I don't, I don't know if, again, this is very gray. I, I don't know if my opinion is the right thing here. Um, there has been for a long time a fascination with Japan and Korea and China, right, from Western potters. Fine. It's it's a place where craft is revered in a very special way where, you know, a potter can be seen to be on the same level as a painter, as a fine artist. And obviously they have craft objects like chowan and tea bowls and yunomi, which are historically important, relate to the tea ceremony and have you know, intrinsically linked to their culture in a way that we will never, I I will never understand those forms. I will never understand those pots. So why would I choose to make something like that? And I was getting lots of comments on my Instagram being like, but why aren't you making, you know, the pots around you, the chowan and the uh, the things that Ken makes? And I just thought like, wouldn't it be so dull if all I was doing is looking at the pots around me and regurgitating them in a bad way? Yeah. I mean, you're very critical of potters who make Japanese ware, but have never visited Japan in the book. (laughs) Again, it's a grey area. Yes, in that instance, I think it is a bit strange to do that. You know, we have a rich pottery history in this country. And I'm not saying that you should be limited to the shapes of pots you make and can anyone own a specific shape, but to dedicate your life to making a style of pots that don't really have anything to do with your history or your culture sometimes makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm. As cultural appropriation is what you're yeah, talking about fundamentally. More or less. And I'd never really thought about it that much. And... um one day I had a, uh, in my studio in London, a potter, a friend of mine who's Korean, he came in and we were talking about pots and everything. And he he said to me like, I don't understand why everyone's making moon jars. You know, moon jars are Korean cultural symbol. They are one of our most important things. And now everyone here is making moon jars. And I was like, well, are they doing it out of respect? I don't think so. Are they doing it because it's an object that's popular? Probably. But like I said, it's a gray area. I know me saying this will ruffle the feathers of a lot of people, but I can't help feeling those feelings. And I think they're important to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Well, just as long as I get in touch with you, I think that's fine. (laughs) Anyway, I don't know. What I wanted to take from Japan was just to experience it and to put faces to names that Lisa had told me about. Yeah, yeah. And to see what Mashiko was like and to use the clays they were using. That's what was important. I mean, it is a fascinating chapter and and it's quite funny you said Karate Kid because obviously that was my first thought as I was reading this thing. I mean, it's very (laughs) distinctly, uh, there are parallels there. But the hard work I loved and even cleaning the studio, I've been doing that at Lisa's anyway. You know, I get in the first thing in the morning, I would have to clean up from the evening classes the night before. That was my routine every day. And as an apprentice, when people are coming to visit the pottery, it was my job to make sure it was in a presentable level of cleanliness. And I didn't want it to be messy. I didn't want people to come off the street and go like, oh God, it's a bit horrible in here. So I had this need to keep the place tidy. And in Japan, you know, me and Doi, who is the hardest working man I've ever met in my life. Well, you worried about him, didn't you? You worried about his work. I worried about him. Mm. He worked a tremendous amount and he didn't have much of a social life or a life outside of the pottery. And the thing is the work culture in Japan is what it is. You know, it's, it is as hardcore as they say it is, Mm. but if he enjoys it and he enjoys that way of life, then that's his decision. And it will be worthwhile because guess what? He may have worked for, I think he's been there for more than 10 years now. Ken's a very well-known potter 
Doi will have fame simply because he is part of that lineage and he worked with Ken for 10 plus years. So mm. it will do him well to be there and he will learn a tremendous amount. But yeah, sometimes, you know, they don't do much making in that situation. Doi didn't do much practical hands-on production. And I do sometimes worry, you know, he's become an apprentice to learn how to make pottery and to become a potter. Yet he's not making pots for a long time. So I, I don't know. I'm sure he'll be a brilliant maker when it comes down to it. And after observing and, and being involved with the craft for that long, he does know everything. You know, he is the blood that keeps the studio running. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So look, we've got this far mm -hmm. through the interview, and I haven't asked you about social media yet. Yes. Um, <laughs> the YSP press release mm -hmm. describes you as a social media sensation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which I rather like. And across various platforms, you're heading towards like 4 million followers. Mm -hmm. But what's striking is that what you do, it isn't sensational. It's thoughtful and it's detailed, mm -hmm. you know, as are the films you make on YouTube. Do you remember the first Instagram post you did back in, what, 2014? Yeah. I think it's just a picture of two jars side by side that I made in Thomastown mm. with a, a bad photo and not a very interesting caption underneath it. No, quite a short caption. Have you, have you gone to have a look? It took me ages because <laughs> there are so many. You know, it took me a good half yeah, hour to scroll time. on my phone down to the bottom. And we talked about your style aesthetically yeah. in pottery emerging. How long did it take for your social media style to emerge? It's still developing mm. and it's still having to actively change because of the, you know, the new things that social media companies implement. It's hard because I don't know if I want to be known as that. Often people call me that, you know, you are the Instagram potter or something like that. Yeah. It's fine. But ultimately what I make is pots and I, I prefer that that's the, what I'm remembered as, as opposed to the potter who was big on Instagram and social media. I started posting at a time when there weren't that many potters blogging about their day-to-day -day activity on social media. There weren't that many people using a proper camera to take photos. It was still relatively amateur. There were a hundred million users on Instagram compared to 1.1 billion there are these days it was easier to get a larger following i think with that being said you know i didn't expect it i remember i basically started just to show what my family and friends what i was doing during my apprenticeship that was it i had no inclination of it being a platform to run a business through you know and i told lisa i was like are you okay if i just like take photos and video around the workshop and she's like yeah that's fine and um i went in you know two weeks later i was like i've got 10,000 followers lisa well that was a year later it takes a long time. At the beginning, I was not a confident writer. My photos weren't particularly good. But after forcing myself to do both of those things now for 10 years, I'm a much more confident writer. I think my photos are okay. You know, they're pretty decent. But the writing was good enough, apparently, to do a book. And that's what my, you know, my editor, Richard, who got in touch, he said, I've been reading your posts and they're fascinating. And I think there's a book in there somewhere. So those helped land that situation. Yeah, yeah. It's the dedication to it, which is Again, pretty extraordinary. Obsessive character. Yeah. I haven't missed a day posting except for days when Instagram has quite literally not allowed me to because there's something, it, it's down or something since 2014, which is a horrible, horrible, depressing thing to admit. <laughs> but at the end of the day, when you see that something is successful and it works, yeah. why stop? Yet at the same time, I find I don't want to be doing this in 10 years time. Well, no, I was going to ask, do you feel it a pressure? Yeah, constantly. Have you seen, for instance, Tom Scott, who's a famous YouTuber, huge following recently, has, has quit YouTube because he feels burnt out. There's this thing with social media where you're constantly feeling as if you have to perform and be relevant and you have to create content to, you know, keep it's again, it's putting fuel in the engine. And it's this very strange dynamic because for me, it's arguably what's helped propel my career. It's a second job. You know, I get home and I spend a couple of hours every night or whole weekends or whole days creating content for it. 
And that's not making pots. It's this whole other entity, but it's given me so much, right? And it can be very tiring. Sometimes it's the last thing I want to do, but I wouldn't be here without it. Yeah, I, 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 at the same time, I find, you know, social media is toxic and consuming. And I think it's definitely made my attention span worse. Easily, it's made it worse. I hope that over the next 10 years, it can somehow take a back seat. And I think that will happen. And I think that will hopefully happen to everybody a bit. Mm. Interesting. And there's a fascinating passage in the book where you're telling a group of established potters about how you're selling across social media. Mm. And, and they're quite hostile. It's an established method now, but selling pots across the internet when people couldn't touch them, I guess, in retrospect, quite disruptive what you were doing. You know, you didn't, or you don't have to do those rounds of fairs that previous generations did. Mm -hmm. Were you surprised by their reaction? I think I was a little bit. I think I was maybe a bit naive. I never put myself in a position where I was, you know, going around lording over the fact that I was selling work without having to leave my bedroom. I never did that. I was very quiet and careful about it in a way, but obviously the word got out somehow. And I think I had a lot of real, quite nasty comments thrown at me from posits who thought what I was doing was ridiculous. But these days, people will buy anything online. You know, people buy clothes online, people buy food online, people buy art online. Again, I think I kind of caught it at the right moment, which definitely helped. But yeah, I was surprised. I mean, it's funny because the people who made those comments, guess what they're all doing now as well, social media. And for all the negatives these platforms have for controlling, you know, the algorithms that feed you uh, content that they want you to see to the extent of getting Trump elected, all these kind of terrible things being interfered with. It's allowed craftspeople and makers to become known who would probably have never ever had the chance before. And that's the extent of craftspeople in countries. You know, the UK has always had quite a good pottery scene. You know, there, there's been these fairs where you can go and you can sell your work, but there are countries where that wasn't really the case. And social media has allowed them to build this gigantic audience and they can ship their pots all over the world. And they're known. And that would never have been the case before. I think a lot of people call it luck. I've had a lot of people come up to me and go, oh, you're so lucky, you know, to have this following. Does that bother you? Yeah, it really bothers me. Because if they actually knew the amount of hours I'd sunk into it, it would make them sick. You know, it's like anything. If you go to the gym or you're learning to play the guitar, but you only spend an hour doing it a week, the results aren't going to be particularly good. Whereas if you're doing it two or three hours a day, every day, you're very quickly going to become good at it and successful. It's complicated. Social media has so many negatives and so many positives, and it's such a polarizing world. The strongest opinions are there. You can't go online or to, onto Twitter these days without seeing the most terrible comments and things from people. I hope that it gets better and not worse. Florian, we're coming to the end of our time. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. A couple of final questions. Hit me. You work alone currently. Obviously, the book is about being an apprentice. Is there a plan for an apprentice in your life? I think when I scale up, yes. At the moment in my studio, if I had an apprentice, I'd probably be telling them to shut up <laughs> for most of the day. <laughs> you know, I spend so much time filming and I make these kind of tutorials or kind of guides that go on YouTube. And I have people messaging me from all over the world saying, thanks to your videos, you know, I've stopped my career and so, and, you know, an X and I'm now becoming a potter. So sometimes I'm a bit torn. I would really love to have an apprentice, but at the same time, if that impacts how I can make these videos that help millions and millions of people, well, I don't know if millions of you, I mean, my Instagram almost has, I think I'm a million views away from a billion views, Blimey. which is a completely absurd abs you know, number. So if my videos have helped a certain amount of people that way, then fine. I don't feel so bad not having an apprentice. You know, I will remember my time with Lisa and Ken forever. You know, Lisa feels 
like one of my closest friends, even though we don't talk that often these days, you go through a very intimate relationship where you learn their business inside out. You learn how their pots are made, everything, you know, it's really personal. Mm. And I think I would really one day love to have that experience with some apprentices. So I'd need a, a slightly bigger studio. I'd love to have a space where they can have like two smaller studios that they can work in and produce their own work when they're not helping me do my things. Yeah. And then a communal space where you can sit and have tea and chat. That's what I miss the most. And trees outside for them to rake up the leaves, presumably. Precisely. Yeah. YSP show goes on to the 25th of February. Yeah. What's next for you after that? So <laughs> I keep telling everybody that I don't want to do much after doing a book and a big exhibition in one year. I have a few pieces in collect coming up. Okay. And then I have an exhibition with Make Hauser and Worth in May, which is just some tea wear. Nothing major. And that's intentional because whilst writing the book was a lovely project and something new, I really didn't make that many pots throughout it. And I'm dying to do more glaze experimentation, tests, make bigger and, you know, better pots. That's what I want to do. I want to make, and then maybe another book at some point. Very good. Very good. Florian, our time is up. Thank you so much for that. That was wonderful. Thank you very much. And, and the book is, you know, is a lovely, lovely, delightful read. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm glad you did. So thank you. By My Hands is published by Particular Books and is available in all the usual places. To find out more about Florian, go to floriangadsby.com. As ever, to find other podcasts that I've done and to sign up to our newsletter, go to materialmatters.design. And there are images relating to the interviews on our Instagram page, which is also materialmatters.design. Finally, this is really important too. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive an invite to various Material Matters events, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.